welcome to the, um, I guess it's the third episode of the Imaginator podcast, and uh, we have uh, Matt Downey with us again today. Say hi, Bonjour Matt. Bonjour to Le Monde. Bonjour. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. From Montreal, um, I am Chris McQueen, and today we actually have a guest with us, Sherry McConnell. Say hi, Sherry. Hey there. <laughs> We're really, really happy to have Sherry with us. Um, we are diving into um, kind of the second part of a series on um, just trying to trying to describe um, what some of the fuel is for um, for us as creative beings um, in in doing the work of just creating stuff, what drives us. And uh, last, last month we were engaging with David um, Roos and talking about the sort of the big, grand uh, world of um, creational creativity, which is a little bit redundant to say on one hand, um, but just speaking to creating beautiful things, um, not necessarily for a specific point, but... Um, but today what we're wanting to do is to dive into something that we're calling, for lack of a better term, missional um, creativity. And just our full sort of disclosure on the front end of this is that um, any term like that, particularly missional, can carry with it some baggage. And so um, just to bring a little bit of articulation to that, um, there's this long trajectory of human creativity throughout our history where artists and creatives um, and imaginators have been captured by different um, either areas of injustice um, or see something that they want, see um, something happening that doesn't have a voice and they want to come along and to help to give a voice to that thing. Um, or sometimes they're just captured by the beauty of a story, something like the gospel of Christ, and they just bring their imaginative juice into that. And, and they would, there's a sense of mission and purpose in what they're doing that maybe goes a little bit um, beyond, or is, the intention is a little bit further than just doing something that is um, beautiful, but is actually trying to achieve some kind of purpose in the world, um, hopefully to make that world a better place. And so... Um, so that's kind of a working, broad stroke uh, understanding of what we mean when we talk about missional creativity. I don't know if you guys, either of you want to interject um, and add to that or disagree with anything that I've said, which is totally okay. Yeah, it's a great conversation to have. I think it's, I think it's really important um, for artists, uh, for creatives, but also, um, I mean, really, in essence, we're all really, we're all creative because of God, the, God, the creator who's created us. So I think that's really important, but specifically how it impacts, uh, the church, the kingdom, um, mainstream society, all of that. So yeah, it's a great discussion. Let's go for it. Fantastic. Um, so why don't we just start like, Sherry, do you want to just talk a little bit about some of the work that you have done? Um, and just, uh, where your perspective is coming from as we set the stage for, uh, for where we're going here? I've been involved with creating um, large, particularly youth and young adult events for years since, I guess, 1997 was when I really started doing that in the Canadian, in the Canadian side um, and have been involved in, you know, um, artist event management, um, event creation, um, 
Yeah, I get, yeah. So since 1997, but also with individual artists and, ma and at, a, at a management level. Uh, five years ago, I um, was went to go work with World Vision and uh, as the director for youth engagement in Canada to start running and creating and redoing their entire youth engagement strategy for Canada. But then in year two, my por portfolio expanded to oversee all of the, um, the artist and celebrity side of what World Vision particularly does with Canadian artists and beyond that at a North American and global level. And so really reimagined what a collective of artists uh, could look like in the in the understanding of um, really our mission being to ignite and mobilize a movement of creative storytellers and inspired advocates for the work of World Vision, and so that's really what I what I was really giving my life for. Very cool, very cool. Um, yeah, you know, when I was thinking about um, what we were going to be talking about here today, um, I was thinking about one of uh, basically I had this moment. Um, it was a number of years ago, um, and it was this experience where we were in India, and it was actually a worship gathering. It was, uh, it, you know, there was a sense of of, of um, um, evangelism, a hope to have some people encounter um, Christ for the first time. But really, what it, what it was was a open air worship gathering, um, and we were in a largely Muslim. Um, not neighborhood, kind of in this open-air, garbage-strewn um, lot. And um, what I saw take place there was this, this band got up and started to play original... Uh, they were worship songs, but they started to get up and play these songs. And um, it was a great night. I mean, it was a great time. Uh, we experienced the spirit in all kinds of really cool ways. Um, and But then we kind of went back to our hotel room and did the typical thing that if you know if you've done this for any length of time you know there's usually a carb crash <laughs> at, the, at the end of an event like that and so you, you go and you eat and whatever um, and we went to bed feeling pretty satisfied because it felt like a really good event but the next day we get up in the morning and the organizer comes rushing in um, the, uh, the on the on the ground guy and uh, he's got his cell phone in hand and he comes rushing into our where we're eating breakfast, and he says, "You got to see this text. You got to see this text." And I guess he had posted his phone number on a lot of the posters that they'd put up advertising this thing. And so he shows us this text from um, I from a, a woman, and um, I don't want to embellish the story. I don't want to add stuff that I don't know for sure. But um, it basically says that she had the day before. Um, she had decided that she was done with life. She was going to end her own life, take her own life. And, you know, she was in her apartment, I, I guess, preparing to do this. And this music that, you know, that was being played across the road drifts in. And she responds with this and she just says, you know, um, listening to this music, I found a reason to live again. And it was just this profound moment for me. I mean, I, th I think it was a profound moment for her, obviously, but um, that we weren't just playing games and we weren't just entertaining. And even though the songwriter, this guy who wrote this song, had never probably intended that or, or would dare to dream that his, that his creativity was going to literally save a person's life, um, 
that is what happened. And so all of a sudden, for me, there was a shift in in kind of what I was thinking was taking place when I sat down with pen and paper and did and started to engage in create creative rhythms. Um, and I just wonder, you know, for, for other of you, um, you know, in particularly Sherry, like with your experience in working with artists and, you know, is there sort of a central moment that, um, that sort of stands out as being an aha, um, an aha moment where you, where you realize that it means something that the, that the potential and the capacity for change is so much bigger than we sometimes think. Yeah. I I'm reminded when you're sharing Chris, I remember years ago I was living in Los Angeles, actually working with David and, and Anita uh, in with Basilea. And I used to go, this might sound a little bit odd, but I used to go to Forest Lawn Cemetery. It's this beautiful cemetery in in Los Angeles. And I used to walk through the cemetery and pray and, and that kind of thing. And I there's this one mass, like large mausoleum, and there's this quote inscribed into uh, the inner part of this mausoleum by um, Calvin Coolidge, who was the 30th president of the United States. And it says this, and it just reminds me of what we're talking about here. It says, if we could surround ourselves with forms of beauty, the evil things of life would tend to disappear and our moral standards would be raised. Through our contact with the beautiful, we see more of the truth and are brought into closer contact with the infinite. And, I, and that quote throughout the years since I read that has really stuck with me because when I think of art and the power of art and the tremendous influence art and creativity has. And I keep using art because whether it's music or whether it's a beautiful dance or production that we're a part of, um, or whether it's that song that we hear, it surpasses, I find, the intellect and cuts right into the heart of humankind and it awakens, it heals, it gives voice. You know, I love the idea of um, oftentimes I have found it's it's literally like this um, experience that literally um, translates you into a whole nother place. I'm reminded, you know, I mean, for many of us who are in the kind of creative community at whatever element, you know, oftentimes, especially we look to Bono and we look to U2 and as um, just, you know, impressed not only by their musicality and their creativity, but also their voice of action and advocacy in this world. And, you know, some of the stuff that he's been saying over the last few years in particular, I really loved and I've really stuck to because, you know, he refers to all art as being prophetic and how if the job of the prophet is to describe the soul, then isn't that really what an artist does? And talks about how, as we all know, Jesus uses stories and metaphors and literally cuts through um, the arguments of the day, even if I can say, or sometimes just the messiness of life. But it's because of honesty and transparency and vulnerability. If that artist um, can find that place within themselves and create from that place, not with agenda necessarily, but, but with um, just that that heart, I have found the most beauty in some of the most broken places in my travels, whether it be in you know Southeast Asia, Nepal, um, you know Brazil, Dominican Republic, all the various different places I've been to. And um, one of our advocates, one of our artists that has worked uh, with World Vision for years, Tom Cochran. 
you know, he, he said humanitarian is, humanitarianism is about the ethics of compassion and kindness. And for me, that's what I think about mission. When I think, because as someone who loves Jesus and who doesn't need to have scripture and verse for everything that I think we need to do as artists, because innately we create from that place hopefully of being Jesus Christ centric, you know, because of our relationship with him, that really that's what, you know, that's what um, mission is. It's about compassion and kindness. So I'll give you one story. Um, I was at, this was a few years ago. I was at the Junos and I was at an after party. It was the Junos in Winnipeg. I can't remember which year that was. It was a few years ago. And um, I was at the Universal after party. And, you know, after parties are after parties. Most people are wasted. They're drunk. They're parting it up. Loud music going in the background of this bar. And I saw this beautiful young girl standing at the back. And I walked up to her and I introduced myself to her. Well, she was from Montreal. And so I just started talking to her and I said to her, um, I said, can I ask you a question? Because I really felt like the Lord was actually prompting me to ask this. And, and I knew that this might come off and sound a little bit odd, but she was this real kind of hot pop artist in Montreal. And so I said, um, uh, what, you know, like, how did you get into this whole thing? How'd you get into the creative industry? And she started to tell me the story. And then I said, can I ask you this question? She said, sure. I said, what moves you to compassion? And it was like, you could have heard a pin drop and in this loud, you know, atmosphere. And she just, all of a sudden she just got really, really awkward. Like didn't know what to say. She kind of started stuttering. She goes, nobody's ever asked me that question before. I don't know how to answer that. And it kind of was that awkward, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, great, Sherry, you just messed that one up. And so soon the conversation kind of ended and, and they left kind of where we were standing. Well, she literally, no word of a lie, comes back 15 minutes later. She hunts me down in this bar and she says, I've been standing in the corner thinking about that question for the last 15 minutes. And she says to me, I think I know. Can I tell you? And I said, yeah, please tell me. And she said, she said, I'm, I'm a young mom. I had, a, I had a child at an early age. I'm single. I have always wanted to be a teacher. And I got into this, into music, because I love music, because it's, it's one of my, it's my passion. And she said, I've always been really interested in helping young moms and helping children that are abandoned or orphaned. Is there any way that I could take my creativity and my music and attach it to, like, helping girls young, and babies and young moms? And I said, yes. And it was this beautiful moment because she had, she in that moment had never, ever thought, well, what really moves me to compassion? What is that thing inside of you that you say, um, I know that I was, I was meant to do this in my craft and in, and through my message, but what is my message in my craft? It was amazing how that would connect to artists. It was literally like we would be talking to them and the light bulb would come on. I mean, there's stories of artists that have been on the field. Like Tom, again, is a classic example. I mean, Life as a Highway actually was first written as Love as a Highway and was released in 1991. In fact, he's, he's on a 25-year year tour right now of the Mad Mad World album, and he actually put the original lyrics from Love as a Highway on that album. But the interesting thing about it is that that was born out of a scenario where he was confronted with that question of what moves me to compassion. He's in Mozambique, Africa. The war's still going on. I guess it would have been 1990s, somewhere in there. And he went into a wet feeding tent, which is a tent with World Vision where um, 
you know, babies and children. I mean, incredible starvation. They're being fed uh, with just liquids because they can't eat solids, obviously, at that point. And there was a woman in this, uh, a girl, sorry, a 12, 13-year-old girl that was holding her mother on the floor. And they went in to see her. And he saw this this child holding her mother who was dying, who literally died right in front of them. And she was, and, and he said, all I could see was the face of my daughter in that moment. And it was that moment for him. And he just said, it just, it ruined him like for good, obviously. And he just said, my life couldn't be the same. I came back from that trip. I was in a funk. I was like, what do I do with that story? That song was, was birthed out of that experience. I see that there's something about beauty that's awakened. We would do a lot of art and creative and music programs in our area development programs on the field, even in Brazil and Dominican Republic, specifically on two separate trips in the last couple of years, seeing these kids that were coming out of extreme poverty and, um, and they were in these small music class groups that World Vision, of course, was helping to sponsor. And it was so incredible seeing the life that was coming out of these children. I mean, they would go home to like nothing, but they would come, they were committed, they were faithful, they loved it. It was like the highlight of their experience. And they were really good. <laughs> you know, they would mm. do concerts for us. And so here we are in this like, you know, dust bowl of a, of a place. I mean, we weren't in some fancy school or anything, but we're outside usually under a tree somewhere and these kids you could see the transformation of what music and art and um uh, was doing for their lives i mean some of them walking for miles just to come and play once a week with this music class um and so i remember capturing stories of these kids you know sharing how it's changed their life being able to do this thanks sherry for all of that uh, those stories um, the con- kind of the idea of missional, I think sometimes that word is so loaded or um, with good and bad things, like you said, Chris. But I think sometimes using other uh, concepts or telling stories really helps us think about it, the intentionality or the direction of creativity. And kind of three words in, in Sherry's um, talking kind of stood out to me. One was the idea of being present or making something present, whether that's um, just the idea of something uh, which, in, in all of your stories, it's people going somewhere that is not their home, that's not their context, right? They're they're being present in another context, and that somehow helps them see or awakens something in them. Uh, so it's it's being present in a new way in sort of way. Uh, second thing was connection, where it's always one story kind of rubbing up against another story, and then seeing, wait a minute, our stories intersect in some ways. There's there's a point of contact here that uh, is happening in the process. And the third thing was of of people being seen or heard that maybe didn't feel like they were seen or heard before through the connection with someone else's story or someone coming into their context who that hadn't been there before. And uh, it's so, like, I'm just recently, like, the, I read a lot. So I was on the, I don't know where I was. Anyway, I'm reading, always reading on the metro or bus or somewhere. But I was reading this story I just started. It's called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, quite a phenomenal book. And it's uh, he's a lawyer working for justice within kind of 
the context that he grew up in, which would be urban, poor, kind of black neighborhoods. Anyway, he's, I'm just reading this story that he's telling about going to see a man on death row and feeling like I have nothing to offer this man except to say, I'm really sorry, there's no lawyer to help you right now, but don't worry, uh, your death sentence won't, it won't happen. You won't be given a date for the next year. That's the only message he had to give to this man. And so he walked in and he, and he just kept apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The only thing I can tell you is that you have a year and we don't have a lawyer right now, but, but that's all we can give you. You have at least a year. And the man, his demeanor just changed from being so downcast and hopeless. He said, I have a year? I'm going to tell my family to come visit me now. I wasn't afraid to have them visit. But he said, I'm going to tell them to come visit me now. You've given me such hope. I mean, and the the lawyer, he wasn't even a lawyer at that point. The intern thought, what? I gave you nothing, really. And the man's demeanor totally changed. And then as he's leaving, and the guard treats him very badly, as he's leaving, the man starts to sing a gospel song, The Prisoner. Hmm. And I'm reading these words, and I'm going, I'm hearing this story, a story that is really outside of my experience and context, and I'm brought to tears. And then I look around me, and I see those kind of because I live in a very multicultural kind of city, and I see people that are kind of on the fridges. I see Sikhs, and I see Muslims, and I see young black guys, and I think all these people, and I suddenly look at them, and I say, in this this moment of reading the page of this book, I suddenly feel connected to all their stories. And I think Mm -hmm. the crafting of those words, the telling of that story, has connected me to all these people that I'm with and changed how I view them. They're suddenly very they're real people instead of just generalizations so i don't know there's this thing about intentionality and mission happening accidentally i think sometimes through just someone telling their story in a beautiful way that's accessible to people i love i love that um i reminds me actually of a uh and I never would have connected this actually to this conversation until just he- listening to what you uh, were saying there, Matt, in particular, al- although just this whole conversation. But um, last year, uh, Liv and I got invited. It's a long story, but we got invited to, to play uh, a short set at, um, at a friend's neighbor's home for an Eid celebration, like a Muslim uh, festival that they have. And... Um, I don't know a lot about that, about that festival, but I do know that it's sort of, um, it's a feast where it's a feast that is ultimately focused on the poor. So there is fasting. And then in Muslim countries, there's a massive slaughter, um, which sounds very barbaric, but it's like barbecue, right? Um, And then, but the food is then given to the poor, typically. And um, so, this we get this call out of the blue, this invitation um, to come to this um, Muslim family's home, and they want us to do our kind. We we sort of have this like Americana kind of set or whatever, and you know the one the one request was that we do uh, Country Roads, <laughs> John. That was like a favorite um, for them. Um, so anyway, so we're, we're pulled into this, and we and we get up and we do our thing. Um, but not before we heard some stories of people who were, in particular, one of the families was was uh, just uh, just in um, 
from Syria, Syrian refugee family. Um, and so part of the reason for this gathering we discovered was just to create community around this new family. And, uh, and, but just seeing there was such a, such a, I know this word is scary for, for some people, but there was something that was universal in that space that was taking place as we shared our stories and our songs. Um, they know that I'm a pastor. They know that I'm a Christian pastor. That wasn't the point. It was a space to share error, essentially, and to share our stories. Um, and it was such an, such an honor to see, to be invited into that space. I mean, that's just a real trust on the one hand. But on the other hand, there was a sense of mission that I, I wouldn't even identify. And it, you know, as much as I would love to say that you know everyone saw the glory of Jesus and whatever that might look like, um, we shared a moment and love and brought dignity um, to a family in particular, and broke down some barriers that were you know. And, and it, I mean, it was a totally. Un- I mean, this is just a bunch of people in somebody's basement, really. Um, but it was this idea of what you're talking about, Matt. It was like sharing stories. And we, the thing is, we listened more than we sang because there were other people who were contributing. Um, and, you know, sharing with your, just these stories of basically mingling lives from, from different, um, uh, almost like socioeconomic, global perspectives come together and you start to see people who are different throw them into a pot invite creativity into that mix and somehow community takes place i'm reminded of that uh and i can't remember where i read this but that quote from aristotle that says the soul uh never thinks without a picture i love this part of the conversation this idea of um finding creative ways to express story and it's just it is it's just connecting to to the humanness of of our soul whether we're the one um, helping to create the story or whether we're the one living the story it's it's um it's really it's really beautiful and i think sometimes it's scary because it's really vulnerable um because there is a level of um, transparency, honesty, all of that that we have to go to to be able to connect to that place. Like it's hard whether like whether you're the recipient recipient of um, beautiful artistry and creativity, or whether you're the one creating. I think there's I think there are great there are deep places of vulnerability. Um, but I, there is that, there is, it's kind of that secret sauce, that thing that you're talking about, that synergy that happens, that's unexplainable. And I, and I would, mm. I would believe in our context for, again, for those of us that are Jesus followers, it's really, that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit that ignites something um, that's intangible. I have, uh, yeah. Um, just in thinking about this idea, uh, idea of coming from a place of honesty and transparency um, I think you know kind of puts us in tune with the with 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 the rest of humanity right like it, it kind of levels the playing field because I think one of the things that has often gone wrong um, is that 
sometimes advocacy can turn into um, our own personal rescue mission and can kind of turn into the sort of condescending thing. And so when we have this honesty and transparency, it humanizes the whole the whole thing, which is great. One of the words, though, that I'm really um, wanting to grab hold of, and this is as much a personal thing as anything, but I would be interested to kind of have both of you guys reflect on on this. Um, in light of this conversation, what do we think it means to call ourselves as creative beings to courageous and fearless work? Um, because, you know, I, I have a, I have a feeling in my own bones that, um, well, let me put it to you this way. I grew up, um, sort of wishing that there was more, um, like I felt jealous of people who lived in the sixties because they had so much that they could be, you know, uh, advocate, advocate for or contend with, and they saw a real change. And I, and I looked around and in sort of my, you know, as probably only a white middle-class male could do, looked around and said, wow, the world is so much better than it was. Um, and so I uh, have spent a lot of time, I think, creating safe creativity. Um, and now I look around and I think, you know, not to get too far down the rabbit hole of politics, but I look around the, the world and North America um, and, and I see that we have an opportunity that has made itself, I think it's always been there, but there's an opportunity to do some fearless, courageous work. What does that look like to do that in a but to hang on to those things of transparency, honesty, and I guess most of all, to to be loving um, as we engage in do some like what does it mean to be risky but not foolish? I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as we think about just as you're talking about and that uh, courageous, fearless work and the political climate or all kinds of stuff. Um, I think it's really easy to get um, probably caught up in or respond out of guilt, feeling like I should do something. Or like you say, feeling like I need to rescue someone or work for this cause. And then it really becomes about an agenda or, or me imposing something on someone else, or feeling like you need to hear this message, you need to change, uh, instead of it having be, how can I walk with someone, or how can I be in part of someone's story? Uh, so not responding to guilt or pressure, I think, is really important, because I think we get bombarded with so many opportunities, so many messages that we feel like, well, I should respond to all of these and do all of them in some way. Uh, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not a good person or something. And I, and I feel that same dynamic in the church sometimes, that if we're not responding in a certain way or even invested uh, visibly in a worship service or a Bible study or anything, that's like, okay, you're not buying in. You're not, do, you're not a good uh, Christian, all right? And I think in order for it to be genuine, um, it means being being attentive, paying attention, and not just to the loud voices, 
but to the things that just might be around you that are small, mm. insignificant. You see Jesus doing that all the time, paying attention to small and insignificant things in people and drawing attention to them. And I think it means saying yes over and over and over and over again. Instead of I should, so it's an obligation, it's this wholehearted yes. And that's to me, that's risky every single time you do it because you don't know what you're saying yes to exactly, right? And then you leap, which is even more risky. <laughs> um, hmm. And it's, it's just, the, to me, it's just the opposite or kind of, I don't know if exactly opposite, but it's really a different posture than doing the good things that we should be doing that have already been prescribed and laid out for us, either by the church or society or the media or political kind of climate of the time. This is what we should be doing, fitting into these kind of tracks that are already laid out for people instead mm. of maybe discovering the creative new path uh, that you could make in in the world in some way so almost like a almost like a courageous amen like you think of amen as being the most affirmative word in any language right the strongest yes that's why we say it at the end of a prayer amen is as how i understand it anyways is a profound affirmation and, and commitment i guess that's kind of what i hear you saying in that to be responsive to the i guess the invitation of what of how we're being led or stirred or whatever um but to, to make it a yes rather than an agenda, is that right? Yeah, because I, I think agenda is everywhere present, even in our own lives. It's, I find it really insidious in my own life. It's really, really hard. Uh, and I do pastoral work as well. It is so hard not to have an agenda and trying to fix people, fix things, make things better, and just get it done. It is mm. so hard to be in that vulnerable spot, in that weak spot, in that waiting posture and allowing people the space they need to engage in transformation as they respond to the Spirit and not to my pressure or my expectation. I find that incredibly difficult and humbling always. I think, I think, I think the thing for me as I'm, as I'm listening, um, the first thing I thought, Chris, when you were asking the question was um, I thought automatically the, tra- the trappings from the artist side where they've felt really burnt and abused, um, you know, for their art. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, cause I know we have trappings or quote unquote agenda w- when we think of mission and say the broader church, but I also think of the artist where we've easily, um, manipulated artists to kind of get what we can get out of them. Um, and with no cost or no, or no sense of real true community. And so I just had written out a couple of things here. Like, um, I, I think the, I think the other thing we have to be careful is we don't get so fearful because as we know, humanity has a way of going either polar opposite left or polar opposite right, that we're afraid not to create, I think artists need safety is I guess what I wanted to say. Artists need safety. Um, and I think that that's, I think that all creativity really functions best in safe places. The other thing I had written out is that artists have to create. Like, it's like I think of even that song, how creation calls out. Like, you know, the rocks will cry out if the people won't worship. Like, there's so many different, you know, th- analogies or metaphors that I think of. And I, and I think creativity, um, creativity 
has to come forward and artists have to create. I think at the end of the day, our inner motivation, because really agenda is about motivation. And I think when I think of, in just a real simplistic way, I think it's really, again, back to authenticity. Like, what are we, what are we authentically moved by without the pressure of, you know, somebody telling us we need to do this big event or we need to create this really cool happening worship experience at church or, you know, um, but artists have this unique ability um, to wield tremendous influence in culture and, um, and, and in all culture, like all elements of culture, because of that burning thing in them of saying, it's kind of like, if I don't create, I'll die kind of idea, you know, and, 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 um, and it's meant for the stage. It's meant for the public square. It's meant for um, uniting the body, the church. It's meant for, that's not an agenda. That's just what ends up happening when artists, I believe artists create. If, if they're in, a culture and a community of safety. And I know for me, that's one of the things I've always been passionate about is not controlling, but how do we come alongside and create safe spaces for um, so, creativity? Can I jump in on that just for a second? Because um, I, I, I definitely think I hear what you're getting at. Um, but I'm wrestling a little bit with the idea um, the idea, like, I think we need to define perhaps what safety looks like because, um, you know, one of, uh, a good friend of mine, you know, once described the process of being creative as, um, leaning out off, off the edge of a cliff, full weight given, and you're relying on the updraft of creativity to sustain you, which is where, and that's the only place that it's the only way that you're capable of reaching out and kind of grabbing the valuable fruit, um, for, you know, and otherwise you're playing it safe kind of thing. And so I wonder if creating safe spaces might look like having some safe spaces to be in the weeds a little bit sometimes, safe spaces to take to take risks. Um, and I, I wrote a word down here as I was listening, and it's sort of a it's a word that rubs slightly the wrong way, but I can't think of a better one. The idea that when we are tethered to one another, so not tethered as in chained or being held back, but tethered as in being connected and knowing that somebody is, um, is on side with, with, the, with the journey, to me that feels like a safe a safe environment. Is that kind of what you're getting at or like, how does that look? Yeah. Cause I think I know in the experience, I mean, when I would approach artists to come do stuff with us, right. Projects or tours or events, it, it felt very user centric. Like I'll come do this thing for you. If you pay me this amount of money, or if you give me this, you know, um, platform or stage to perform on, then I'll speak to your cause. And all we were doing was it was a user-centric relationship. It wasn't a safe place together. And you're right. I think safety includes mutual risk. It includes on um, both parties or however many parties are in the mix, mm -hmm. you know, that we all bring our authenticity to the table and vulnerability and transparency and then be able to be, yeah, just to be honest about that and, and really create together. 
Because even though I might not be the artist on the stage, I guarantee you, I see my work as very creative work, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so I agree 100%. Like, I, it, it always includes risk, and it always includes that every party risk, not just the one person that's being pushed out in the front or whatever that looks like. That's good. That's good. I, um, so as I've been thinking just again in my own, I mean, a lot of this journey for me has just been a personal one of, um, I don't know if I would say, I don't know if I would say it's been a guilt ridden journey. Um, but I, I think I've personally been confronted with, um, what it means to personally inhabit uh, a space of privilege, um, societally, I mean. And I know that at this point, not all of the listeners of this program would identify with that in terms of being, um, having, having kind of being born into privilege or whatever. Um, but I think probably a lot of people would identify with that on some level, just sort of, it's, you know, if you look at, uh, at a lot of the churches, not necessarily everybody listening is going to be in a vineyard church, but they, you know, they do tend to be, a, a, they have a heart, we all have a heart for the poor and we see a lot of mingling of, of um, socioeconomic lines, which I think is beautiful. But a lot of people that I know particularly creatives um, are sort of sharing in the, in the boat with a, you know, white or middle class or male or whatever. And, um, and so I guess part of what, you know, I, I'm challenged by um, some of the things that, that Matt was saying and that you're saying, Sherry, um, where we are focusing our mission um, towards other people like I'm you know it's this thing if we, we're going to go in and, and we're going to engage or bring a rescue or whatever and there are some things where we where we can um, check ourselves and make sure that we're helping to, to level a playing field so that we're coming in in a posture of humility and um, you know mutuality and reciprocity and all of those words I think are great um, but I started to ask myself what does it mean to do work that is actually speak that that is challenging my own posture or position that I innately sort of inhabit um, or speaking into like I'll back up a little bit so if I think of advocacy if I'm advocating this is not universally true but I think typically if you're advocating it's like you're taking something that you have as a place of privilege and you're speaking for you're helping to give voice to someone who would otherwise have a difficult time having that voice so you're advocating on behalf of um so you're coming from outside a particular group into into a group that perhaps is um having a hard time in some way um and then there's this other thing which is i call I guess others have called it too. It's not my thing, but this this idea of doing disruptive work, um, and I think that for those of us who are um, in places of, of privilege societally, that the work of disruption is a lot more expensive to us 
than the work of advocacy. Um, and I think that advocacy is very important. Like, I don't think that it's wrong or anything like that, but I think it's a lot easier. And we see that sort of on Facebook too, how easy it is to sort of champion the latest cause or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's work that gets done there, but I've been really wrestling with what does it mean to be disruptive and not in an unloving or just, you know, a rebellious kind of way, but in a, I mean, Jesus was super disruptive in the way that he creatively engaged his culture and the people around him. Um, and I would almost say that that seems to be um, kind of, if I look at the bulk of his language and, his, and the direction of, of who he was speaking to, that's, he, was, he was as much about being disruptive as he was about advocacy. It's like he sowed the seeds of advocacy, but he spent time making his life uncomfortable in those who would be peers. Um, and so, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I, I just wanted to give some space to, uh, to that because it's challenging. I think, I mean, for me, being kind of, obviously, you know, being raised in the church and working within the church for years, but then in the last five years working in a, in a very large humanitarian organization, I, I can say confidently that I think that, um, uh, I think one of the challenges, but in a good way, that um, we were wrestling with, and many of us in the humanitarian space, was that we want advocacy to become truly disruptive. That the question is, is, is there a way to, to merge the two? I mean, in, in the context of how you're talking about the differences between the two, like, how can we do that? Um, you know, take, take the resources and take the, the privilege um, and use it to, to become disruptive. Um, and, and I think that that's something that I know many of us have really been wrestling with. Um, cause I, because quite frankly, I think, I think when we talk about the context of privilege, my view is that really, and this is not cause I, re I, I recognize that there are many, there are various individuals from different socioeconomic statuses that are going to be listening to this. And it's not that everybody has money, but if you really take it onto the larger context of the world stage, we're all privileged, you know, really. And yeah. whether whether we're living on welfare or whether, you know, whatever, like um, in the context of the global, you know, the global side of life. And and so I I just kind of think... Yeah, I think how I guess I would be interested in the conversation of saying, how do we become disruptive advocators for whatever that thing mm. is? Like, I think that's one of the things that's that's really alluring with like a, a figure like a Bono. You know, um, he's obviously a huge advocate, and he has very specific causes and campaigns he promotes through one and various initiatives, but. But he is definitely, I believe, a disruptor. Like, what does that look like? And what is, the, I guess it's, what is the power that we're given as individuals and as a community? And how do we wield that influence? How do we use that influence? No, it's a good, I mean, there's definitely some good thought in there. Um, just as we're kind of winding down the conversation, um, uh, Matt, do you have any any sort of, thoughts that you'd kind of want to land towards the towards the tail end of this particular session this particular conversation uh well i was thinking of 
Bono saying and talking about his fame and the platform and the resources that he has at his disposal. And he said, it's just currency. I've been given this currency through my career. And the important question is, what do I do with that currency? And I think that's really much what Sherry was talking about, is that maybe instead of using the word privilege, which I know is a trigger for, for some people, because uh, it, it sounds like an accusation almost, and this just the idea of we all have currency. Uh, so it's not a matter of amassing the currency, but what do we spend that currency on? What are you going to try and gain with that currency or invest with that currency or spend it on, give it to someone? Uh, and seeing that, yeah, we have currency in something, whether it's creativity or our finances or a home or food or whatever it is, we have currency. What are we going to do with that? And, um, yeah, the idea of the intentionality behind that or the motivation behind that. Like, I don't know if I have much to add here on the disruptive advocacy, which I think is kind of a wonderful term, uh, kind of encapsulating both sides of that. But if not, if love isn't at the center or to reduce Sherry's word, compassion isn't really behind driving behind both of those things, we become very, like you say, condescending and we can become destructive. Yeah. And I think that's the last thing that we want to do is uh, bring destruction into people's lives or make people feel even less than what they are or what their situation is. So I think if we don't have love and compassion that opens us up to being changed as much as being changers, then, uh, then, it, then we're in a danger zone a little bit, I think. Yeah. A book I once read talks about a clanging symbol, I think, with regards to... <laughs> to <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Um, at the risk of, at the risk of, I don't know. This feels a little bit awkward, but it sort of feels appropriate too. Um, just in my closing little bit here, and then share maybe just give you a couple of moments just to kind of maybe put a seal on on this. Um, but I, I've really, I really have been walking through what does it mean to to do expensive work like for myself as a creative, and so I actually have. Um, this this song that I've been that it, it almost would be a worship song possibly, but I probably would get some letters or emails at the end of it. But I just thought I would read the lyrics, kind of poetry style, and it might be terrible, and it might be. I this is not to be self serving. I just no feel judgment. a little awkward, but this you're vulnerable risking, space. Chris. Yeah, you're, you're risking. Vulnerable space. So this is just the wrestle for me um, as I've been contending with this. So. Here goes. Um, When my blindness is your darkness, I must learn to see. When my privilege knocks you over, it's not enough to believe that all is well with my soul, if it's not well with yours. When my ease becomes your burden, I must share the load. When my choices force your hand, I must walk your road. Because it's not well with my soul, if it's not well with yours. Don't forget the poor in spirit, for God is not forgotten. Don't forget the poor in body, for God is not forgotten. Don't forget the poor in mind, for God is not forgotten. And this is where I get into trouble. To hell with good intentions if the valleys stay below. To hell with power and might if the mountains don't come down. Because it's not well with my soul, if it's not well with yours. 
I'm excited about about um, us, whoever's listening, looking around and falling in love with the world that God has made, falling in love with being able to recognize what he's seen as good and recognize where that goodness has been broken and allowing our creativity and even our complicity in some things to to bubble to the surface and to respond and to act in loving ways and maybe to change some things. Um, I love that idea. I just want to read this quote one last time, the Calvin Coolidge, because I really, I just think it's, you know, um, I don't know. Let's do it. Okay. Um, If we could surround ourselves with forms of beauty, the evil things of life would tend to disappear and our moral standards would be raised. Through our contact with the beautiful, we see more of the truth and are brought into closer contact with the infinite. Yeah, I would just add one thing is, no, in response to what you just did there, Chris, I think as people who sit behind microphones and talk about things, it doesn't feel very expensive what we do when we use words and talk about things. But I think when we offer some of our own uh, raw offerings that feels a little bit more expensive. So I think you're actually walking the talk right now, Chris. So thank you. Well, it's good, you guys. Let's keep walking it then, hey? Well, okay, so one of the things that we're not really good at with these things is landing the landing the airplane because the conversations are always beautiful and could always be twice as long as they are. But I think it's probably time for us to press pause on this one. So um, thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us and bringing your perspective and your um, expertise and just the history. And, and thank you as well for your years advocating and creating spaces for artists to do work that matters to them and to others so thank you very much for that and um yeah it's uh thanks for joining us everybody it's chris mcqueen signing off and matt downey from montreal and sherry mcconnell in beautiful sunny Kelowna, bc Shut up. (laughs) I had to throw that in somewhere. That's great. Cool.